All right, let's kick it. Happy Sober Day, friends, and welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and sober coach. My personal addiction has shaped the person I am today and given me the ability and voice to help others, and I simply wouldn't be here without it. Recovery is possible. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we talk to other recovering alcoholics and addicts. We hear their stories and hope to help others who may still be struggling. Head on over to thesobrietydiaries.com where you can apply to be a guest on the show and to join our insiders list. Please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Joining us today is Matt Ganem, recovering addict, recovery homeowner, and poet. Hi, Matt. How are you today, my friend? Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Very blessed to be here. Very grateful. What are you grateful for today? I mean, a lot. Not just, you know, not just one or two things. I mean, I live a very beautiful life, very fulfilled, purposeful um, I've been in recovery now 15 years. I celebrated 15 years on April 21st. Amazing. Um, I got a 13 year old son, which is really strange to say that he's a teenager. 13. <laughs> he just turned it July 2nd. I got an eight year old daughter. Uh, just turned eight on June 24th. So father of two kids, you know, a business owner. I own sober houses. I've started a couple of treatment centers in the state of uh, Massachusetts. I'm currently the CEO and owner of Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center in Wakefield. I have a book out called The Shadow of an Addict. I've traveled the country to speak and do some poetry, spoken word stuff. Um, you know, I've lived a, a pretty, pretty cool life. You know, the last like this past year has been not the easiest for me. So, um, you know, been reflecting a lot lately because I've been blessed and, and given some really cool gifts. So with that, let's open the diary on Matt. Uh, yeah. Matt, why don't you walk us through uh, your own journey first, and then we'll get into all that good stuff. Yeah, so I grew up in the Oxycontin era. Um, you know, my, my drug addiction really started uh, before that. Uh, it was a lot of, like, being accepted, trying to fit in. Um, you know, I felt like that unspoken peer pressure around my friends. So whenever they were doing something, I felt like I had to, or I'd be ridiculed or made fun of or not accepted. Um, so the first thing that ever happened, uh, buddy stole a pack of cigarettes from his mother, broke out a cigarette to each and every one of us. And I didn't have the courage to say no. And one by one, we lit up our cigarette, coughing up a lung, thinking we were cool kids on the corner. And ultimately, like that followed me for, through every substance from from alcohol next to weed to ecstasy and mushrooms, um, acid. And then uh, when I was 16 years old, I was introduced to this uh, this little pill called Oxycontin. Now, at the time, I didn't know that, like, trying it, I would end up being an IV homeless heroin addict. Um, the, the, the history that we have now wasn't out back then. It was more like, you take this, you're going to feel good. Right. And um, I got my education from the people that were around me, not necessarily my parents. Um, you know, not that they raised me to be a drug addict. I was raised to, to, to not end up in that situation. Um, but when it's socially acceptable, when you're surrounded by it, when it's all around you, it's it's something that like, you know, I didn't even bat an eye that what I was doing was synthetic heroin in a pill. Hmm. And uh, we were at a house party, same, you know, type of situation. Didn't have the courage to say no. I was like, oh, I tried this. And one by one, like the group of friends I was with, we all tried it. And uh, the first time I did an OC80, it was like the most magical feeling I ever had. I felt like, you know, I was on top of the world. I could conquer any fear. 
that if Mike Tyson wanted to fight me, I would stand toe to toe with them. That you were there, you know, I had the hottest girl around I could hit on. Like I just had, I had supreme confidence. And, um, you know, when I stop, you know, the next morning when you wake up, you don't have that lingering effect that like, you know, my freshman year, I struggled doing ecstasy a lot and I would wake up every morning and my body would ache, my, you know, even coming down off it, you're like, you know, you get these suicidal thoughts, you're just negative. And, um, it didn't really have any of those like lingering effects. It was just like, all right, cool. I feel well enough to get up and, and take on the day again. So, um, you know, ultimately back then it was easier to get an 80 than it was to get alcohol. Um, a drug dealer wasn't going to ask you for your ID. Um, you can call them up, you give them money, they give you pills. And, you know, it started out Friday, Saturday nights, quickly turned to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Then what are you doing on Monday? Then let's split a pill on Tuesday. Let me borrow $30, $40 to get, you know, a half until, you know, until I get paid, whatever. Um, ultimately it turned into an everyday thing. And, um, back then at this time, um, I'd gone through four different high schools uh, in two different states. I got kicked out of my third high school and ended up in uh, Exeter High, New Hampshire. And uh, it just so happened there was a girl from Massachusetts that lived around the corner from me. And we were like the only two people in the entire area that knew what an Oxycontin was. Hmm. So then that just fueled my addiction, you know, continuously doing it. I somehow managed to graduate. And I went right back down to Mass, down to to Somerville, where I was living. And like, you know, I was caught up in the chaos. I was caught up in a lifestyle that I hung around with people that like weren't really, you know, looking back at my age now at 36 years old, I, I, you know, they, they wouldn't be who I would be looking up to now. But when you're 16, 17 years old, you look up to these guys who have nice cars, they have money, they have girls, they have this like reputation in the streets. And and that's something that I wanted. And, um, you know, ultimately I ended up following in those footsteps. I was a monkey that sold bananas. I sold OC80s, um, you know, ended up being in an apartment that got raided by the OC task force. Um, right after that, uh, you know, my disease ended up progressing. Uh, I moved into one of my uh, best friend's house because obviously when your door gets kicked in at an apartment, you get evicted rather quickly. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, crashing on my buddy's couch and his, his, his addiction was a little bit further along than mine. He had already started doing heroin and, um, you know, ultimately September 1st, 2004, I woke up to his mom screaming and he was hanging in a bathroom and he committed suicide. And, um, you know, when you go through like experiences like that, like at that point in time, everything I did revolved around getting high. Like it was you know, I used to feel normal. I used during good times, during bad times. And now dealing with that type of trauma, it was what I did to to cover it all up. So I wouldn't think about it. So I didn't have to feel. That's why ultimately I continued to get high. So I didn't have to feel. And, um, you know, the crimes became, you know, a little bit worse. The people I hung around with got a little bit worse. Um, you know, we started like, holding up corner stores and doing some really things that, you know, if, if I wasn't doing drugs, I wouldn't have done. And um, ultimately OCs got pulled off the market. You couldn't find them on the streets. I was deathly ill. I'd been in that, in and out of detoxes for a little bit up until that point. And um, I was dealing with a court case and I got introduced to this thing called heroin. 
And when I was young, and you mentioned the word heroin, what it sounded like was this filthy, disgusting, dirty, nasty, homeless guy, never me, never picture me and heroin addict in the same sentence. And then you're dope sick and you're kicking and you're curled up and somebody introduces it to you. And it's not like, hey, this is dirty. It's, hey, this is going to make you feel better. Hmm. And without even a thought, all that, all the, the, the thoughts I had about it went away and I tried it for the first time. And at that point I was doing hundreds of dollars worth of eighties a day to maintain a habit and, and the crimes that would come with it. And then you get introduced to a $40 bag that lasted me a little bit longer, you know, and it was a little cheaper and economics played a part. It's like, all right, cool. I spent sure. $40 here or I spent $400 there. You know, common sense says you're going to, you're going to ride out with the, the $40 bags or the, you know, buying grams of that. And in detox, when I first went in, I used to always look at dope addicts like, hey, I'm better than you. I'll never end up like you. I do a pill. A doctor makes this. I, at least I know what I'm getting. You have no idea. And it's dirty and disgusting. And then here I am sniffing heroin in and out of detox, looking at the dude that shoots heroin like I'm better than you because you, you use a needle. That's dirty. Mm. And then eventually I ended up being the guy that, you know, that did all those things. I wasn't better than I was no better or worse than the people that were in there. And uh, I eventually ended up shooting heroin. And and that was another thing you chase. And, um, you know, I ended up getting hemmed up with a class A distribution charge. Uh, Cause again, you resort to like whatever ways you can to make money. And, and one of my ways was selling heroin to support my habit. Now I wasn't a drug dealer with cars and fancy things at this point. I sold and did all my profits and that's how I kind of got high for a little while. At this point, not everybody had progressed with me. So like my family had cut me off. My friends stopped, stopped hanging out with me. Um, you know, I was looked at as like, you know, Matt's a heroin addict. He's, you know, bad news. You can't hang out with him. You can't talk to him. Um, you know, the lies out. My mother and my father were sick and tired of me calling up saying, hey, I need a place to sleep for the night. And then I would take everything that I possibly could fit in my pockets and and running. Um, I wasn't like an admirable drug addict. I didn't care about you, your family, my family. I'd step over anybody to get that bag. Hmm. And, um, you know, brought me to some low places, you know, compromised who I was as a person. I was in and out of uh, programs. I was facing, you know, some significant jail time. I went to jail. I went to Bill Ricker for a little bit and then, um, you know, I was on this like suicide mission that, that every time I got any type of, of dope or, or crack, I would put as much as I possibly could into my arm, hoping that I wouldn't wake up. Right. Hoping that every shot of dope I took by the morning, I would just fade peacefully in my sleep. And, um, it didn't happen. And, at the end of my run, I was sleeping head to toe on a futon with uh, one of my boys and uh, we were living with his mother and I was giving his mother dope as my way to like claim my spot on the futon. And my buddy ended up at uh, the Hamilton house in Dorchester, this halfway house. And um, every day he would hit me up and be like, Matt, you, you really got to get off the streets, dude. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Cause he knew, like I had told him, like, I don't, I didn't picture making it to 21 I never thought I was going to live a, a good life. I had court issues, family that like I had so burned the bridge that they were done with me. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have anything. And every day he's telling me I got to go. I even, I took his little sister to visit him and I was high. Hmm. 
that's the mind state that I was in. I was so selfish and self-centered that I didn't care. There was a house of guys trying to get better. And I showed up and I couldn't open my eyes. I was drooling on myself. Wow. And, um, you know, about a, a little while after that, one morning I woke up, I was deathly ill. I hadn't showered in weeks, was wearing the same clothes. My socks, you would have to peel off my feet and the skin would come off. I was a disgusting uh, skeletal lookalike. And um, his mom was getting high in front of me and I was dope sick. And she she looks at me and she goes, Matt, you got a, you got an effing problem. You need to go and get help. And then she proceeded to, to get high with the one thing that would make me feel better. And um, from there, I ended up going into the bathroom and like I looked in the mirror for the first time. And for years, like, you you know, you try to make sure your hair is OK. You know, there isn't dark stuff on your teeth, you know, but you don't really look at yourself. You don't want to actually take that like I'm going to I'm going to take a look, uh, a soul searching look, I guess. And I didn't like what was looking back. It was a stranger and I couldn't even tell you who it was. And um, I was like, I got to get help. I want to live more than I want to die for like the first time and probably, you know, probably a year, two years before that. I ended up getting into a to a detox, ended up making it to that that halfway house, which was like one of the hardest halfway houses in the state of Massachusetts at that time. And, um, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I was I was gifted this like second chance at life that like, especially looking back now, I don't have many friends that are left. You know, a lot of people died from whether it was drug, suicide or the lifestyle. I mean, a lot of people got taken out because of it. And um, so how did that change from little or no confidence from the confident man that I see and hear today? You know, in that halfway house, I was 21 years old, terrified of the world. So when I was on the street, I had this big like bravado, you know, I had a reputation. I was a stick up kid and I sold drugs and, and Matt's trouble and all this nonsense. Right. And I, I got stabbed. I've like, I've, I've done some knucklehead stuff. And, um, and then here I am, once you remove the drugs from me and I'm this terrified little boy trapped in a young man's body. And like, one of the hardest things for me is communicating or talking to the next person. So I couldn't go to the six, five guy that just got out of prison who's a monster and be like, Hey buddy, I'm having a really difficult day today. Like, can we talk about how bad my day is? Right. And, um, you know, so in there, one of the biggest therapeutic tools that I use and one of the biggest things that's helped me stay sober is I've rediscovered, uh, poetry. Um, I wrote when I was a kid, I wrote, you know, I caught, I grew up in a, in a broken home and, um, I wrote when I was young, I was always told that I had this gift of like writing and uh, it, it went away for a little bit. I wrote when I was getting high. When I was on, on 80s, I thought I was going to be a rapper and I was going to be the Tony Montana of the Oxycontin game, which clearly was not anywhere in the cards. <laughs> but um, thank God. You know, writing, yeah, thank God. Um, <laughs> but writing was like a huge release for me and it was an escape. And uh, one of the, the, the best things that happened was I started writing in that halfway house, I started writing about everything I was going through, you know. Early on in recovery, you get hit with the shame and like the weight of everything that you do and it just weighs you down. And if you don't have an outlet, you know, we don't talk, we don't talk. It builds, it builds, it builds. We explode and we go back to what was normal. And normal for me at that time was sticking a needle in my arm. What it gave me was this like, all right, I'm having a bad day, pen, piece of paper, write out how I was feeling. And when I was finished, I was like, all right, that's like a fresh breath of, uh, it was a breath of fresh air. And then 
you know, I, I'd have a difficult phone call trying to reach out to my mother and I would write about it or my father or people that wouldn't talk to me because the last time I talked to him, I begged him for $50, promised I'd pay him back and hadn't seen him, you know, because right. again, when you're using, that's what it is. And, um, you know, ultimately I, I went six months with that halfway house, stayed in a sober house after developed a good network around me and then um had a baby really early on in recovery that you know at the time it was like i just put down heroin and, and now i got a kid comes baby. on the way and it was like you know it was it was one of the it's the one of the greatest things that happened to me i ended up getting full custody of him five years ago uh he lives with me he's my little mini me he's creative he's ambitious and um you know, but at that time, it like really focused me into like, I need to do more. Now, I didn't go to college. I didn't have an education. Um, I had a little bit of talent writing. And uh, one of the things was, is I made a decision to try to chase poetry and turn it into something. Poetry started with me performing in front of four people at an open mic. And I, I read through a piece of paper into a microphone, <laughs> shaking. I have performed... Uh, the biggest show I ever performed at was Recovery Fest in 2018. And it was in front of anywhere from 10 to 10,000 to 15,000 people. Amazing. And I've featured at the New Eureka Cafe in New York City, which like world famous poets, yeah. you know, frequent. I featured around all over Boston, um, you know, for the poetry thing. I started doing recovery events. I started getting involved with advocacy because there's like multiple pathways, in my opinion, on how you get better. You know. Yeah. So then what new coping mechanisms were you using in, in early recovery? One of the things people, you know, early on tried to ridicule me was I was very vocal about my story and putting it out there. But when I was trying to get when I was getting high and first trying to get clean at 18 years old, there wasn't somebody who was like, hey, buddy, you can do it. Right. I would go to these places and they'd be like, "Nah, you're going to relapse. The relapse rate is 92 percent. You're going to fail. You're going to do this. You're not. You're going to progress to this. And it was like. You know, how are we supposed to get clean if people don't start talking about it? And um, I use poetry as like my voice and my platform. And, you know, it was like very unorthodox when I first started because people were like, oh, you know, they hear it. And they're like, oh, roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> and then they bring me on and people would be like, wow, that, you know, that was really cool. Or that, you know, that poem was dope. And, and it ended up growing into this like, you know, just doors of opportunity. You know, when you stay doing the right thing. You don't use, you don't drink, like, you know, good things happen. And, um, you know, poetry catapulted me into getting a, a job in treatment. I started working for, for a good friend of mine, Mike Duggan, that I'm blessed that he pulled me out of construction. Because uh, early on, when my son was, was, was real young, I would work 40 plus, 40, 50 hours a week doing construction. I would do about 15 hours at a second job, and then I would go hit up open mics and, and events. You know, just trying to like make ends meet and trying to make something of myself. And um, Mike opened the door to work in treatment. I work with a company called Wicked Sober that he owned for about a year. And, um, you know, and then I took a job a year later that I eventually opened up the first treatment center that I opened up. I'm not um, not going to name the program, but in 2016, I opened up a facility in Massachusetts and it was one of the first of its kind and, and ran it for four years and, and built a huge community. A lot of people got well out there, uh, had an incredible staff and um, you know, that ended up opening the door to, to where I'm at now. Um, you know, I had a bad falling out with my former partner 
not really going to go into the details of that, but this past year, that happened just about a year ago. July 28th was the day that 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 things kind of went sideways for me. And um, for me in life, I've been faced with a lot of obstacles. Yeah. Um, and getting clean from heroin has given me this, this uh, mentality that you can't throw anything in front of my way that I'm not going to overcome. That I'm not going to get through or figure out a way around it, over it, whatever I have to do. To, to achieve my my goals, I'm going to get there or to, to get through a situation. So this past year, I got faced with some soul searching of my approach on helping people on, you know, my character, um, everything that I that I put into this into my recovery. Um, and, you know, I got faced with a, a fight or flight situation and, and be resilient or, or fold and and, you know, I chose to, to, you know, fight through it, keep pushing. Um, you know, we opened the doors to, to Aftermath Addiction Treatment Center in October. Um, got one of the fastest licenses ever issued in the state of Massachusetts. Great. I got an incredible team over here of, like, people who are so passionate about helping that, like, you know, it's not a, a, a titles don't mean anything. We're all in the trenches with you trying to help you get better. From my clinical director to myself, Joe Papa, Jenna Bedreau, Johnny Hansen, Jamie, Hillary, Cody, Nikki. I mean, we have like such an incredible team and like we, you know, we were just very blessed. And, uh, you know, we've been open eight, nine months and, um, you know, it's been an incredible journey. And like over that time, I've also had the chance more recently to sit back and reflect on like I've been clean for 15 years. You know, sometimes you get caught up in the rat race and you don't appreciate everything right, right. That, that you have going on. And and like one of the biggest things that I tell people is you got to have a, a very solid network. And my network carried me through some of these times um, being able to pick up the phone. And it's not like you're drinking, buddy, or the guy that has the best dope or somebody that knows you have money. It's Matt, I love you. You're going to get through this. I'm here for you. Or just listening to me losing my mind over a, a situation yes. <laughs> just to get it off my chest. So I'm not bottling it up. Right. And for them to just sit there and like, at the end, give you a hug, tell you they love you. And it's not for any game. There's no, like, you know, like I said, it's not like you drink a buddy that like, once you stop drinking, they disappear or they know you have money and you get high. And then the second you get high, it's like, see you later. We're not bothering with you anymore. It's like genuine. It's like a family is how I look at it. And and I'm very blessed for my recovery family, my recovery network. And like, I live like an absolutely incredible life. You know, a couple of years back, I bought a couple sober houses. I bought my own home. I was homeless, homeless. And I remember the first night I slept in my house and I just sat on the porch and I thought about every hallway, every park, every gazebo, every back alley, every couch, basement, everywhere that I had ever slept up until that point from sober house to Roman house to my first apartment, sharing an apartment, my own apartment. And I was just like, you know, it's just, it's not about material things, but having a moment like that, it was just like a blessing. And I was just filled with gratitude, like looking at life and where I'm at now. Like I just, I couldn't even tell you thinking back when I was a week clean, a couple of weeks, a month clean, I could never picture that, that this is how my story would turn out. I never pictured like, being down at the state house, clashing with politicians, giving them a peace of mind from like, you know, they move like molasses while people are dying. Right. And they, you know, 
They just want credit and photo ops instead of like actually making change happen. <laughs> and I'm a D I'm a DEA circuit speaker. I just got hit up to do an in it, to do a documentary for the drug enforcement agency. Wow. They flew me out to Cali. I mean, I've performed talk about all full across, circle. There. Yeah. Like I've, <laughs> I, exactly. Like I've, I've performed all across the country. Um, you know, I got my son that like, he knows my entire story. I, I talk with him about like peer pressure and not using. And, yeah. and, you know, I got a beautiful daughter that wants to be a singer and we like rhyme together, which is, you know, it's just, I, I live a very cool life and I'm very grateful. And it starts with, you know, the fact that I got clean, I surround myself with good people. I try to do the next best thing, try to do right by people and good things happen. And, you know, I'm very passionate. I give my heart. I work really hard and I show up recovery events, fundraisers. I just try to be there for people and try to be a voice and, and give somebody some hope because, I just remember when I first tried getting clean, there wasn't people out there sharing their story. There wasn't, you know, somebody who said they had 15 years or 10 years or five years. It was like, you either, you either end up dead or you go to prison. And that was kind of like what we all accepted when we were using drugs at a young age. So I think in early sobriety, it can be tough to ask for help. And that phone can feel like it weighs 30 pounds. Um, Any guidance on folks listening that are, new to sobriety and struggling a little? I mean, one of the biggest things that I would say is you got to step outside of your comfort zone and stepping outside of your comfort zone is, is whether you're at a meeting and they say, is there any newcomers in there? Put your hand out, let them know like, Hey, I'm early. This is, this is something new. Uh, I'm just trying to get better and I need help and support. And, And don't worry about, about like people that, you know, we, we have one of the biggest issues we talk to ourselves in our own voice and it's like, I'm not good enough. I'm a burden. They're not going to answer the phone. You already predict all these scenarios that don't even happen. Right. And it's like, try to silence those, those voices in your head and, and just raise your hand and just do, don't even think about it. Just pick your hand up, ask for help, tell people where you're at, get those phone numbers and like force yourself to call. There's really like, where we're at now is so far from where we were at when I was trying to get clean with the discussions of it, with, with the stigma about it, there's still a ways to go, but we're in such a better place. And there's people that have time. Like there is really good people out there and like willing to help, willing to help, willing to give the shirt off their back, pick you up for a meeting, take you somewhere, support you in any way. Here, out, you know, I can't, the amount of people that listen to me have complete meltdowns over this past year when I was going through it. And I mean, time and time again, they never didn't answer the phone. They always picked up. They were always there for me. And that's like one of the blessings of recovery is that we show up for people because there was moments that we felt like we were alone and needed some support. And that phone felt heavy. We picked it up. We called somebody answered on the other line. Somebody was there for support, somebody that we could lean on. And sometimes it's just about taking that step, you know, because if you're not calling those people, you're calling the wrong person and you're going to cop the wrong thing and you're putting yourself, you know, you're not doing something to progress or push forward. You said something that I like that, you know, life goes on, life happens. Mm -hmm. You've had a rough year. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that we continue to work on, um, Mm -hmm. even in recovery. How do you keep your head on straight and not like have your old character defects crop up when you're having a hard year, a hard day. Uh, 
I mean, sometimes the character defects come screaming out and you want to like, you know, give into those old behaviors and how yeah. you used to be. And then you realize you're old and put on some COVID <laughs> pounds and you got a bad back. So you probably can't do the things you were doing at 18, 19 and 20. So, um, but ultimately um, life hits you and, and, you know, I've had some ups and downs. Like this was a really, this was the best year and the worst year. If that makes any sense for people like, I had some of the worst times, the lowest of the lows, and then I had some of the biggest triumphs. And, um, you know, I'm very blessed that I was I was equipped with the tools during those low points that I knew I can't sit in my head. So I pick up the phone and I call people that I trust, that I can be 100% honest with, that I can scream, you know, like I'm going to do those old behaviors. And then by the end of the conversation, I'm like, thank you for letting me get it off my chest and not losing my mind elsewhere. I also, I write. And writing is like a huge therapy for me. Like it's, you know, when I'm going through those extreme emotions, I put it down on a, you know, I write it down. I put my thoughts out, some pieces I'll never share with anybody because, you know, they're not, uh, sometimes it's good to get your anger out in different ways. And, yeah. and, and that's one of my ways and my, my therapies. And that's for me. Did you want to share any of your poetry with us? Yeah, of course. Of course. Great. Impatiently waiting until the smoke clears, tightrope walking between insanity and serenity. I wonder if I can find hope here before the rope tears and the last thread of my misery. I can't escape the fog. The hands of fear grab hold of me, choking me, exposing the broken me of what I was supposed to be. A wrong turn at the fork in the road. Now I can't turn back. Will the door of opportunity close? Should I make my own path? I knew I shouldn't have sold that. A trip away from this foolish paradise to a place where angels with clipped wings make a tie string singing to the afterlife. For my soul... The devil wants to know what's the asking price. My fall from grace is quicker than slipping on black ice. Still searching for solid ground. Spiraling, I'm falling down. Is it really my calling now? Does it still make my heart pound? Standing on stage, staring out at a crowd. But it's nothing but empty seats. Do I do it for them or do I do it for me? Do I do it for inner peace or do I do it to be free? Just breathe. Because I want to take your breath away. Well, I welcome you all to my palace to shame and introduce you all to my marriage to pain. Carrying the shadow that I battled the change. And the war was ugly. I rose from the ashes of a junkie. Used to load up in the bathrooms at donkeys. Now I'm getting high at the crowds in front of me. Like the applause of fix only fit for a druggie. So I take a hit of the people screaming. They love me. And for that one shining moment, these dark skies become sunny. I forget about the nights I was alone. Roaming the streets with no place to go, no place to call home. Raising a broken child on my own. And you wonder why I got stoned. Chemicals numbing my sharp senses. How many nights is a pop bench is a story with the top wrench and why stop, man? The ghosts of my past coming back for vengeance. Syringes saying, use me and you won't end up back behind barbed wire fences, but I'm against this. So I pull a piece of paper out and I let my pen bleed for you to remember me. Even if my physical presence is deceased, the essence of my being will never leave. Inside these words, please cherish me for my soul to be set free is more than just a memory. Matt, powerful. Early on when people would hear, oh, there's a poet sharing, and then I get up and I do a piece that's like that, and, you know, it, it has some pretty, pretty, pretty cool impact on people. I bet. You know? So. Wow. Mm -hmm. What do you hope people take away from hearing you on the podcast today? I just hope I can give somebody some, some inspiration that they can do it. Um, you know, you deserve a better life than the life that you're living out there. And it's like all that chaos, toxicity. Uh, the alcohol will always be there. The drug will always be there. The streets will always be there. Um, you don't have to live that way forever. And you, you deserve a better life and you should give yourself a chance and just, you know, try to live a better life.
And if I can do it, like anybody out there can. Like I'm not, I'm nothing special. Like I'm, it's cool. I've been able to do some cool things in life, but the reality is, like I got high, I was homeless, um, and I was able to get clean. And the fact is, is that you guys can get clean and sober too. Matt Gainham, thanks so much for your time today, friend. Oh um, yeah. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. Huge thank you to Matt for being so open and honest. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. You can find all things podcast related and subscribe to our show at thesobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast or on Instagram at the sobriety diaries pop. All of this will also be in today's show notes. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, friends.